As far back as the 2nd century AD, it was theorized by folks living in Europe that some large landmass must exist at the southernmost part of the globe. This theory wasn't based on any real science. It was more of an aesthetic preference. There must be land down south because there was land up north. The planet would be unbalanced otherwise. And as a result of this equilibrium-based ideology, Terra Australis, a theoretical continent at the very bottom of the planet, began to show up in maps. The Roman writer Macrobius Ambrosius Theodosius produced maps in the 5th century AD, which featured a massive landmass wreathing the bottom of the Earth. On these maps, he called this undiscovered landmass Australis, based on the aforementioned Terra Australis. Over the course of three voyages between 1791 and 1810, the British captain, Matthew Flinders, circumnavigated a couple of southern landmasses which were unknown to the Europeans at the time. He confirmed that a previously discovered landmass called Van Diemen's Land, which today is called Tasmania, was in fact an island, and he confirmed that what we today call Australia was, in fact, a separate continent. This continent, it should be noted, was already inhabited by humans who had been there for an estimated 65 to 70,000 years. Presumably they migrated there by crossing land bridges and making short sea crossings back when the continents were still closer together. But the continent had also been visited and partially mapped by Europeans before this particular exploratory voyage. And a great deal of that earlier exploration was done by the Dutch, who gave it the name New Holland, which was a name that stuck until its later redesignation as a continent. But it wasn't designated as separate and continental in an official way until Governor Lachlan Mackery received charts and writings from Captain Flinders, in which the captain recommended the change in name alongside his exploratory notes. Flinders felt certain that there was no way another, more southern landmass could exist, and said as much in his writings. Hence, the land that today bears the name Australia is kind of misnamed, bearing the moniker originally intended for the most southern continent of Antarctica. Though again, based on the best information available to anyone at the time, Australia was the southernmost landmass on the planet, so they can probably be forgiven for their misnaming. While Terra Australis is Latin for southern land, the word Antarctic, which was coined by the geographer, cartographer, and mathematician Marinus of Tyre, means, essentially, the opposite of the Arctic, referring to the Arctic Circle. Arctic, if you're curious, is a word that comes from the Greek word arktikos, which means near the bear, or northern, referring to the northern constellations in the sky. So the Antarctic is as far away from the bear as you can get, which refers to sky bears, but which is also the case if we're talking about polar bears. That might make a good mnemonic 
for remembering that the Antarctic has penguins, while the Arctic has polar bears, if you ever get those two mixed up. Interestingly, although Captain James Cook entered the Antarctic Circle and even passed a few small islands in the region in 1773, he and his crew never caught sight of the mainland. It's estimated that they may have come as close as 150 miles, or about 240 kilometers, from the still undiscovered continent, but never got close enough to glimpse it. A few different expeditions claimed to be the first to have seen Antarctica, about 50 years later, in 1820. Some Russians, some Englishmen, and one American all claim this moment as their own. But the first person to have set foot on the seventh continent was almost certainly the American Captain John David, who walked on the Antarctic ice in 1821. From there, we entered the so-called heroic age of Antarctic exploration. This new land called out to those who were looking for unfaced challenges, and there was something of a race to be the first person to set foot on the South Pole. Many expeditions set sail for Antarctica during this period, and many even made it to the continent, setting foot on land before venturing out to pursue the South Pole. This started in the mid-19th century and ended around World War I in the early 20th century. A Norwegian expedition, led by Raoul Amundsen, reached the Pole on December 14th of 1911. He beat out his rival, an Englishman named Robert Falcon Scott, who made it to the Pole four weeks after Amundsen, and who was also the first to discover fossils of plants in Antarctica, which indicated that the continent had once contained forests, and probably once connected to the other continents as well. Antarctica was, because of its location and its climate, the last continent to be permanently occupied by humans. Even while the heroic age of exploration personalities raced to reach the South Pole, others strove to map the periphery of the continent, and some of these people even managed to turn their expedition camps into rough settlements. The emergence of the so-called mechanical age of Antarctic exploration came after, and at least in part because of, World War I. New types of propulsion led to new ships, which made getting to Antarctica simpler, if still not simple. And new types of planes allowed explorers to map inland portions of the continent without succumbing to the worst of the on-the-ground weather conditions, and at much greater speeds and with a much wider view. From 1955 to 1958, the first overland crossing of Antarctica was completed by an expedition made up of explorers from Commonwealth states, at the same time, Scott Base and McMurdo Station, established by the New Zealand and United States governments, respectively, were being built. These bases led the way for later stations and camps that would be set up by other countries in the coming decades. As of today, there are around 70 to 75 permanent stations and semi-permanent bases of various sorts in Antarctica, operated by over 30 countries. And the population of Antarctica, the whole continent, varies from around 10,000 people in the summer months to around 1,000 people in the winter months. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 40,000 tourists visit the continent each year, and there are an estimated 5 million penguins 
living on the continent. So that's all pretty astounding, if you think about it. At its peak occupancy, about 10,000 people for a whole continent, 5.4 million square miles, around 14 million square kilometers. That's about the size of the United States and Mexico put together. 10,000 people on all that land. But of course, the climate doesn't really allow for much more than that, and the environment isn't exactly welcoming to outsiders. Everything the residents eat has to be shipped to Antarctica, and a huge quantity of resources are consumed just to keep that many people alive and unfrozen. In many ways, our ability to survive in such an unforgiving, unwelcoming place bodes quite well for our aspirations to spread outward into space, though at least there's breathable air in Antarctica and gobs of happy penguins. As of yet, we have not discovered air or space penguins out in space, so our expansion out into the solar system and the larger galaxy will be far lonelier, presumably, than our expansion into Antarctica. Our slow, quite recent migration into Antarctica is fascinating in part because it represents a modern version of what we've been doing as a species since the very beginning, since before we were even this species, arguably, moving around, occupying new niches, and figuring out ways to survive and thrive within unfamiliar environments. Part of what led to our evolution, it's posited, was our need to move, to escape some calamity or to chase new opportunities or to simply feed our curiosity. Something pushes us to spread out and to take up so much space, to diversify in the way that we have. And that drive continues to push us to this day and for just as many possible reasons. What I want to talk about today isn't Antarctica, but rather migration, human migration and how moving around, something that seems to have always been central to our species, has been curtailed in modern history, and how that shift has led to some uncomfortable economic, cultural, and governmental consequences today, perhaps most especially in moments when larger migrations become necessary for one reason or another once more. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. There's a concept related to migratory patterns and people moving around in general that I think is important enough to mention up front before we get into any specifics. And it's important in part because it's something that we don't really discuss. It's uncomfortable to discuss it, I think. And it's something that many people might disagree with because it conflicts with a lot of strongly held ideas about the world and the social framework we've built atop it, the imaginary reality that we all agree upon that makes the modern world possible, rebels against this concept. It's also uncomfortable because a lot of our personal, individual self-perceptions are tied up in region-specific identities, which makes having a deeper-level discussion about that topic tricky at best. But what I want to address up front here is the concept that no land, no geographic region, actually belongs to anyone. 
in a latent, inherent, absolute way. There's no forest or hill or ocean or collection of resources or acre of arable, tillable flatland that unconditionally belongs to one group or another. Animals are territorial, and we being animals of a kind, but conscious ones that feel the need to justify our actions, are also territorial. But we're territorial in a way that allows us to post facto justify our territorialness. That means creating foundation myths and philosophical arguments and ideological excuses for why we have or want to have the land that we have or want to have. There are many different groups that claim Jerusalem and the surrounding region as their own God-given land. The United States government and its people decided that coast to coast, the region that we now control should be ours. Again, it was kind of a spiritual thing, almost, something we decided to call manifest destiny. China believes it should control all of the ocean contained within the so-called Nine Dash Line, a highly trafficked trade zone that they believe should be theirs, at least in part, because their ancestors controlled it way back in the day. At the end of the day, though, if you go back far enough, almost every claim that we were here first is incorrect. And even the human beings who were the legit first human beings on a particular square foot of land don't have any more claim to that land than anyone else. I mean, is life, is nature, is the imaginary social construct that we've created predicated on a first-come, first-served ideology? Is there some law of physics that says if you have it, you own it? Or if you owned it at some point and it was taken away from you, you still kind of own it in spirit and should get it back at some point? No. This is something that we believe to a degree and adhere to when it's convenient, and we ignore it when it's convenient. That's been the case in every culture ever. What decides who controls what is typically a question of weaponry and population or other types of leverage and power, be it money or prestige or reputation or whatever else. And that's not fair in the sense of first come, first served, but first come, first served is not a natural moral imperative. It's something we invented to explain why we want this land and why we should have it, not just in a practical way, but in a spiritual, philosophical, or ideological way. And this is difficult to accept because, as I mentioned, a lot of who we are, our traditions, and the stories we grew up with are predicated on the idea that we own something, latently. The U.S. deserves to have the land that it's on. It was written in the stars that many Native American groups claim the same land as theirs, with their own ownership also written in the stars, is not factored into this feeling that the world would keep spinning if someone else occupied the land currently claimed by the U.S. government is difficult to accept if you're a big fan of the United States. But it's true, nonetheless. Just as the groups who claim Jerusalem ignore first come, first served when it doesn't serve them, but claim it when it does, there is not a nation or cultural demographic on the planet that doesn't at least partially define itself, set apart from others, based on the concept of governmental borders and the land contained within those borders. This doesn't mean that these borders are not enforced, 
And it doesn't mean that some people don't feel very strongly connected to the land where they grew up or from whence their ancestors came. But it does mean that although we can romanticize these borders and our claims to a portion of land to our heart's contentment, it doesn't make them real. Guns and walls make them real, not natural laws. So anytime you hear someone say that this land is their land and that some other person doesn't belong there, that's a claim based on nothing. Nothing other than guns and walls. It fails to recognize the broader context. Yes, it's a concrete reality. If the current owners of that land will defend it with weapons or imprison or kill those who cross their borders uninvited, but is it a law of nature? Something that can be justified morally or ideologically? Something that can be justified beyond the management systems that we have invented and put into place? No, it can't. That's not what this is about. No matter how much we may feel, these locations are part of our identities, national and individual. So, that somewhat tricky to discuss point made... The article that I want to unspool today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled Shrinking, Shrinking, Shrinking. Puerto Rico Faces a Demographic Disaster. This article addresses some of the issues that Puerto Rico is facing today, post-Hurricane Maria, and dips its toes into what happens next. And part of this story that's particularly worth noting in part because it's not been very well covered in many of the other articles that I've read on the subject, is this quote from the beginning of the piece. Quote, During the decade before Maria, economic decline and depopulation, a slower-moving catastrophe, had been taking a staggering toll. The number of residents had plunged by 11%. The economy had shrunk by 15%. And the government had become unable to pay its bills. It already ranked among the worst cycles of economic decline and depopulation in post-war American history, and projections indicated that the island's slide could continue for years. Then came Maria, end quote. What Puerto Rico is facing today is a stunning disaster-related turn of events, but it's also in some ways an exacerbated version of what was already happening. The infrastructure was already far less reliable and extensive than it should have been. The population was already in decline. The economy was already shrinking. Take that situation and light it on fire and then drown it, and you essentially have what happened in late September when the 10th most intense hurricane on record plowed right across some of the most heavily populated regions in Puerto Rico. To better understand this specific situation and why it's so abnormal. Remember that Puerto Rico is part of the United States, though it's not a state, and it's not part of the main landmass containing the lower 48. It's an archipelago located about 1,150 miles or 1,850 kilometers from Florida. That's around two hours flight time to get there. It's a little bit further away than Cuba. In 1898, the Spanish-American War ended, and since imperialism was kind of the name of the game back then, as part of the Treaty of Paris, which was the peace treaty between Spain and the U.S. at the end of the war, 
Spain ceded three territories, Guam, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico, to the United States. Cuba was kind of part of this deal as well, though they were more independent than the others. And except for a region called Guantanamo Bay, which we retained the right to lease from them, they were granted full independence by the U.S. government a few years later, in 1904. The U.S. actually went to war with the Philippines a year after that treaty was signed, in 1899. This was a country the U.S. had essentially just bought from Spain for about $20 million as part of that treaty. A slew of independence movements were quashed during that war and over the next few decades that followed. But despite all those movements, the Philippines did not gain independence until after World War II, after a period of occupation by the Japanese, a period during which the locals fought alongside the Americans who showed up to liberate them from the Japanese. It is strange how these things work out sometimes. But back to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, like Guam, which is in the Pacific Ocean rather than the Caribbean Sea with Puerto Rico, is, unlike the Philippines or Cuba, still a territory of the United States, meaning the people born there are American citizens by birth, and they can move freely between Puerto Rico and the U.S. mainland, just like any other citizen. What makes a territory different from a state is that states have formal representation in the federal government. States get votes in Congress and can help elect the president. Territories largely control their own business through a governor that they elect locally, and they don't pay a federal income tax. They're part in, part out. They get some of the benefits, but not all of the benefits. And the benefits that they lack are mostly those that would give them any kind of political leverage, which is a big part of why their infrastructure was relatively run down compared to the rest of the U.S. even before Hurricane Maria showed up. Now, if someone living in Puerto Rico moves to any state in the United States, they gain the right to vote. That right exists for any American citizen except those who are currently residing in a territory rather than a state. Efforts have been made to push Puerto Rico toward statehood, but there doesn't seem to be much stomach for the motion in Congress, and a 2014 referendum on the topic died in committee, meaning it couldn't get sufficient votes to move it deeper into the process. Other votes have been held since, one of them as recently as mid-2017, but the people living in Puerto Rico voting to become a state and the U.S. government actually making them a state are two very different things. Before Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico had the worst infrastructure standards of any U.S. territory. 70% of the population drank water that violated U.S. law. Its quality was so low. Combine infrastructural issues like that with the territory's massive debt, about $72 billion, which amounts to around $12,000 per person, in a territory with a 45% poverty rate. And you can understand, at least in a cold, quantifiable way, why Congress might be hesitant to move forward with a referendum that could lead to the federal government having to foot some of those bills and bring Puerto Rico deeper into the fold, up to state-level regulatory standards. 
Puerto Rico has the population of Connecticut and the geographic footprint of Rhode Island and Delaware combined. But they also have issues, and those issues stem from a combination of factors that have built up over a long period of time. But the destruction of the island, essentially overnight, certainly did not help things. Hurricane Maria's 154 mile per hour winds severely damaged or completely destroyed 230,000 homes across Puerto Rico. They were completely without utilities for days, and two months later, they're still far short of normal resource access. A piece written in The Guardian on November 9th, six weeks after the hurricane, noted that electricity output was still 40% below normal levels, and a full fifth, 20% of the population, did not have access to clean water six weeks later. It's perhaps no surprise, then, that as of early October, at least, around 12% of Puerto Rico's population has left Puerto Rico. That's in the neighborhood of a few hundred thousand people leaving within a very short period, and most of them leaving for some other location within the United States. Economically, this could be catastrophic for Puerto Rico's long-term viability. If those people don't go back, or don't go back for a while, until things are back up and running at full steam, a territory that was already in bad shape could become a whole lot worse very quickly and for a very long time. Consider, as well, that the people who left are, by definition, people who could afford to leave. Many of those left behind will be those of lesser financial means. What will happen to those people who stayed? And just as important in many ways, what will happen to the places, to the states, to the cities that take in a large number of those who left. According to research done at the Hunter's Center for Puerto Rican Studies, in 2006, there were already an equal number of Puerto Ricans living in the mainland U.S. and in Puerto Rico, about 3.8 million in both locations. By 2016, 10 years later, due to normal immigration rates that had been amplified by the bad economic situation back home, the numbers had shifted to 3.3 million in Puerto Rico and 5.4 million in the U.S. mainland. Most of the folks moving to the mainland from Puerto Rico moved to Florida and New York, the two states that already had the highest Puerto Rican populations of all U.S. states. Now, if the majority of a few hundred thousand people move to just a few locations, and especially if the number of people leaving continues at a high rate, that could dramatically shift the cultural ratio in these areas that they decide to move to. Now, that's neither an inherently good thing or inherently bad thing, but it is worth noting. And again, what will happen to the people back home in Puerto Rico, those who can't or don't want to move? What will the demographics there look like after this outward-moving population flow subsides? And will it subside anytime soon? How many people, permanent residents, will be left in Puerto Rico when it does? I think it's worth addressing here, before we get deeper into the discussion, the difference between the word migrant and the word refugee. 
These two words have very different dictionary meanings. A refugee is someone who is seeking refuge. Typically, they are fleeing their country as a result of a war or a natural disaster or persecution of some kind. A migrant is someone who migrates, often someone who is seeking work somewhere other than their home region, but it can also refer to someone who is moving from one place to another for any reason at all. Typically not running from something, like a refugee, not seeking refuge. It's more that they're moving toward something instead. Those are the relatively biasless definitions, but those two terms have become very politically charged in recent years, especially in light of the so-called migrant crisis or refugee crisis, depending on who you ask, that has been taking place in Europe over the past several years. In this context, migrant refers to someone who is intentionally moving to a new place because they want new opportunities and perhaps the wealth and resources that are available to them in a new country. Refugee in this context, on the other hand, refers to people who don't want to leave their home, don't want to be forced to go someplace new to a foreign culture where they're not necessarily welcome but they have no choice. They are forced out. The difference is in the implication as to what these people who are coming in steady waves from primarily the Middle East to Central and Western Europe, what they intend, whether they're arriving in droves because they want to take advantage of the resources of these foreign cities, whether they're opportunists of some kind, or whether because they're struggling to survive, to protect themselves and their families. You can not always, but almost always, infer the bias of an article about this topic based on which word they choose to use when talking about this broader movement. Very often, at the moment at least, those who prefer the term migrant and tend to portray this movement as opportunistic and vaguely or even overtly threatening in some way while those who use the term refugee tend to slant the conversation so that it focuses on the humanitarian concerns and the threats that these people are facing back home, wherever they're running from. Neither bias is correct 100% of the time, but it pays to be aware of how the language we use matters in this circumstance. You could accidentally imply something you don't mean to imply by using words that seem at first glance to be equivalent, when in reality... The way they're being commonly utilized, at least, has kind of weaponized them in a way. Whichever words we choose to use, though, these are movements of people that are happening more frequently and in greater numbers than at any point in recent memory. And all variables seem to indicate that this is just the beginning. Just like many other new intense realities that are being breathlessly covered on the news today, this is likely to be a new normal rather than a flash-in-the-pan event that we can get past before returning things to the status quo. So that in mind, let's put these types of human migrations into the larger context. We humans have been migrating, relocating, forever. That's kind of our thing. But it's trickier to move as we please today because of national boundaries and international laws, 
We have carved up the planet into regions that are, in general, understood to be the sovereign property of one group or another. The governments controlling these regions are the modern equivalent of a tribe of people way back in the ancient past, signaling to others who come too close that if they come any closer, there will be hell to pay. Post-World War I, the Treaty of Westphalia went a long way towards solidifying these borders. Again, things that don't really exist, except that we act as if they do, which makes them kind of real. And this helped establish the modern concept of respecting our neighbor's sovereignty in almost every case, even when we don't particularly like those neighbors or agree with how they live their lives or worship or treat their citizenry or whatever else. We respect their borders and their right to act however they like within those borders, and they do the same for us. Because of this, where we are born plays a huge role and what happens to us throughout our lives, and what we come to expect out of life. The government of the country in which we are born partially determines what opportunities are available to us, and that very much includes what kind of movement we are allowed, both inside and outside our nation's borders. The word privilege can mean a lot of different things in a lot of different circumstances, but the passport that you are given can be a major privilege. Even if you never use it for anything more than a vacation, some people are born into circumstances that limit their movement substantially and thereby limit their opportunities to make connections and to learn things and to acquire new perspectives and to be exposed to new ideas outside of their local government-enforced filter bubbles. Simply by virtue of having a U.S. passport, a huge percentage of the world is open to me. Even if getting there, if attaining visas and things like that, can still be cumbersome and costly at times. But because of the power that my country wields, economic and otherwise, I have relative freedom to go where I like. Not everyone can say the same. And this disparity of freedom and the opportunities that come with it have nothing to do with who we are and everything to do with dumb luck. But we are a species that loves to shuffle around, and a great deal of our history is pretty much just us doing that. A few million years ago, Homo erectus left Africa and slowly meandered through Eurasia, filling the landmass from coast to coast. Homo sapiens, modern humans, seem to have stuck around in Africa to evolve a while longer before also leaving, following some of the same paths as Homo erectus, but also going further and in different directions. By 40,000 BC, Homo sapiens were in Australia, Asia, and Europe. By somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 to 18,000 BC, we were also in the Americas. And by the year zero, the switch over to the common era, most of the Pacific Islands were colonized, though a great many were also inhabited well before that. The Neolithic Revolution, which was the migration event surrounding our ancestors' development of agriculture, started around 12,500 years ago, but really took off when we began aggregating our efforts to build recognizably modern civilizations. The first of which, that we're aware of, and have some evidence to establish a place and date at least, was founded in southern Mesopotamia in a place called Sumer, the Sumerian Civilization. This founding led to the Bronze Age, but it also led to an expansion 
to very specific areas, those suitable for farmland. Humanity's numbers boomed in these regions, and those agrarian people pulsed outward, expanding further and putting down roots more frequently because of their newfound agricultural powers. There are multiple theories about the origins and identity of the so-called Proto-Indo-Europeans, a group that fanned outward from somewhere in the neighborhood of the Caspian Sea into the southern Middle East, northern Africa, and across Europe. A lot of the research in this area revolves around the languages spoken and backtracking using those to the central source. But the emergence of radiocarbon dating and, later, archaeogenetics, which allows for the use of genetic analysis to trace migration patterns of ancient people, confirms that a group located in this region spread out widely, their culture diversifying greatly, and eventually settled into a pattern of domesticating cattle and dogs, thriving in chillier climates, making wheels for wagons, worshipping some kind of sky god, and spreading knowledge and heritage via heroic poetry. The sheer number of groups that seem to have emerged from this one central group is staggering. And even more remarkable is that these groups today often see each other as complete outsiders, as polar opposites from themselves. This migration only took place around four to 5,000 years ago, so it doesn't take long for cultures to fracture and evolve in new and interesting ways. There was also the Great Turkic Migration, which took place in waves between the 6th and 11th centuries AD. The Turkic tribes were large and powerful, but they were mostly unknown to the groups that had settled in the lands across which they flooded, in many cases on horseback. They started in a small part of Mongolia and spread outward to occupy regions as far away as the westernmost expanses of Western Europe before pulling back and reinforcing their positions in the east. And so for a while, this group, this series of groups with a shared regional and genetic heritage, I guess I should say, rode westward, spanked most of the known world, and then took their loot back home, establishing what would become some of the most impressive cultures of their period, including some of the more well-known Chinese dynasties. And those are just three of humanity's larger mass migrations. There has never really been a settled period in human history. There are periods with fewer mass migrations, and there are periods during which, for various reasons, the migrations don't take people as far geographically. But even as we build cities and invest in our home-based lives, a great deal of what we enjoy, the benefits of modernity, are predicated on constant motion, on the shuffling of goods and people here and there, constantly, in a never-ceasing, seldom-slowing web of economic, cultural, and genetic exchange. Now, this hasn't stopped us from trying to control the movement of people, of course. And as I mentioned, though we are always moving, almost habitually, the places we can go that we have access to are very often limited because of government mandate and the desire to keep our nations on good terms with each other. But even the most secure of borders can be breached. Many of the modern world's walls are scaled and checkpoints are tricked. 
This is not typically done just because. It's seldom vacationers wanting to see a particular part of the world who risk angering a government by attempting to bypass these systems. It's usually the desperate or the opportunistic. Someone fleeing something worse than the risk that they're taking to enter a region illegally. Or someone who sees an arbitrage opportunity and decides to take advantage of it. That the risk is worth the potential reward. For a while, there was a lot of illegal immigration into the U.S. from Mexico and Central America. Making this crossing into the U.S. was dangerous for both legal and practical reasons, but those who did it were usually hoping to make better lives for themselves and for their families. The opportunities in the North were far greater, and in some cases, their governments back home were oppressive and even murdery on a regular basis. Coming into the U.S. without proper paperwork was a risk, but it was one they were willing to take because what they were leaving behind was worse. Other people crossed the U.S. border to smuggle drugs or other illegal items from place to place, from places where they could be more easily manufactured to places where they would fetch the best prices. Like I said, an arbitrage opportunity. People flow and trade happens. This particular route isn't as popular as it was a few decades ago, despite what you might hear shouted by politicians looking to stir up nationalistic support here in the U.S. And even when we try to seal these leaks in our borders, there's always someone who figures out a way around those seals. We can regulate the flow of people to some degree, but stopping it completely seems to be beyond the capabilities of even the most powerful countries in the world. This bypassing of immigration structure, of law, can be upsetting to some. Even people who were themselves immigrants or the children of immigrants might resent that other families or individuals managed to pop through using loopholes or illegal means rather than going through the same process that they went through. They gave up so much and in some cases waited a very long time to enter legally and though some are no doubt happy that others were able to avoid the trials and tribulations that they faced, some hold on to that very human sentiment of fairness, which means in this case, they want others to suffer through the same things that they did, even if they, as people, are not hateful or spiteful in any way. This is the feeling that makes it difficult to bring things like free school into legal existence because we had to pay for school, so why shouldn't future kids have to do the same? The concept of fairness also perpetuates rituals and traditions like hazing new members of groups because we were hazed, so why shouldn't these new people be hazed as well? But even with legal immigration, Migrations that result in a group settling in a different place from where they started with the local government's blessing. Things can still be tricky. This newly arrived group might have different ideas, religions, skin tones, ways of dressing, traditions, and everything else than those that they are joining. And these differences provide the locals who are already there with rationales to hate or fear them. Those rationales may or may not actually make sense but it's still a thing that happens. Their latent fear of the unknown, the unfamiliar, is justified by pointing at an arbitrary difference and shouting, ah, scary, not okay. This is one facet of the recent surge in nationalism in countries around the world. There are many other reasons, of course, but the resurgence of angry, violent, us-before-them feelings 
reflects an anxiety about others coming into our space and changing our norms. It reflects a suspiciousness and caution, a social conservatism that in moderate doses, I think would make a lot more sense to a lot of people. In huge potent doses, though, it tends to be a lot more toxic and dangerous and thankfully still quite fringy. But let's talk about the moderate version of this because it's not really addressed very often in the news right now. Here in the US and other places where we're seeing a swell in nationalism, we see more of the actual Nazi version of things, people who are legit white supremacists, for example, and we get the pushback against that, which is the polar opposite of actual Nazis and white supremacists. But we don't see a lot of the gray zones once the established parties have carved out their oppositional ends of the spectrum. The argument for moderate nationalism, or maybe we should call it patriotism or something less politicized than that, but the argument for having pride in your country and wanting to maintain something about how your country currently looks or operates, allowing in a trickle of new people with their associated ideas and norms and the like, is that if you have too massive a tidal wave of new arrivals all at once, the ability of a community to absorb all those new arrivals and teach them the local norms and customs while also adopting some of the norms and customs of the new arrivals, but doing so without either side wholesale canceling the other out, that opportunity disappears. And what you tend to end up with are people who arrive and feel that they're being asked to completely change who they are, to ignore their past, their traditions, everything that's familiar to them, everything that they treasure, and a local community that begins to feel that the same is happening to them, except they were already there. They were there first. And these new groups who just showed up, they're coming in and they're forming their own communities, maybe even completely cutting themselves off from the norms in their new society. And they're the ones that in some ways are now wielding the power of numbers. They are unified by their social exclusion and therefore powerful on a local level. This concern can be unwarranted or blown out of proportion, either out of ignorance or for some kind of political or ideological gain. But it isn't completely a concern without merit. A relatively small group of people actually can come into a community, especially a small community, and radically change the shape of that community, either by intention or just by doing their own thing, participating in politics and economics like any other good local would. There's a small movement here in the U.S. started by a group of political libertarians called the Free State Project. And the Free State Project is a formalized, planned migration meant to result in at least 20,000 libertarians moving to New Hampshire within a relatively short period of time over the course of five years. The idea here is that even 20,000 people, which is quite a small number of people, all things considered, can have a massively outsized impact if they vote as a block within a population-sparse state like New Hampshire. As part of this project, they initially held a sign-up period with signatories committing to moving to New Hampshire within a five-year period after 20,000 signatures were collected. And then in February of 2016, they reached that goal, and the nonprofit organization behind this movement went into action reminding and encouraging those who signed up to start moving. 
Some early arrivals in the area who were part of this movement have already taken public office in the state. Nearly two dozen so far, actually, if you count the people who have already left office. But over half of that number are still in various positions of power within the government. Some running as Democrats, some as Republicans, some as Independents, and all of them organized around the central idea of a smaller, less powerful government alongside their other libertarian ideals. This is an example of what many locals are afraid of when they see groups of people arriving in their city, in their state, in their country, en masse. They're afraid that this new group will vote as a block, will work together better than the locals, and will, as a result, take power and change things to suit their priorities. In a way, this is a strange concern because, I mean, that's democracy. That's how it's supposed to work. Technically, anybody could do this. But as a practical matter, those who work together on these sorts of things can wield outsized power compared to their actual economic and population footprint. And new arrivals are more likely to band together in this way because they are coping with the unfamiliar together. I mean, who among us would not do the same in some strange new place? where few people speak the language that we speak fluently and few options are available. When you go out and look for a favorite dish or a favorite genre of music, that generally doesn't exist in your new home. When you're looking for work or you're trying to get into a school, it makes sense to band together with familiar people from back home who you have something in common with. And that could, and sometimes does, extend to politics as well. So in that way, This tendency is a reality. This is a real threat if you choose to see it as one. It could also be seen as an opportunity, I think. But if you're looking to preserve what's there and keep things from changing, yeah, I mean, this is a real thing. This is something that happens. This, through that lens, is a threat. The free state project model, an intentional centrally orchestrated shift in local values perpetrated by new arrivals, is one of the selling points of many brands of nationalism across Europe right now. They stoke fear by implying that all of these new groups are going to be that organized and intentionally change their new home. In the U.S., too, I would argue this is happening. But in Europe, it's particularly interesting to watch because, one, there are so many different flavors of this kind of scaremongering in so many different countries. And two, because many of these countries are experiencing a wave of new arrivals, unlike anything that the U.S. has had to cope with for a very long time. Even if you are one of the people who sees these new arrivals as opportunities rather than threats, or perhaps a blend of both, what's happening in Europe is something to be coped with, not purely enjoyed. The logistical requirements of dealing with such a migration are staggering all by themselves, but population shifts in which those arriving have such wildly different views and expectations and economic situations compared to the locals, that dramatically amplifies the potential combustibility of the situation. My bias here is that immigration into a country is a generally positive thing. There are some economic rationales for this. The data indicates that decreasing populations in many developed countries will be huge issues in the next few decades. And there are even predictions that as a result of this, some countries like maybe Japan will pay other countries with less developed economies, but higher birth rates like Kenya 
to send immigrants their way instead of sending them to other countries so that they can come in and do the jobs that their local population is now, on average, too old to do. But some of the reasons are a little bit more difficult to quantify. Some of the most pleasant places I've been, in which I've had the opportunity to live or where I've been able to visit, have cultures that are actually a blend of cultures. And when visiting, I could still distinguish the outlines of the original cultures within that mesh of the larger whole. The cultures hadn't dissolved, but instead had intermingled with each other, had coordinated in a complex and complementary way. But that said, in the case of the contemporary European migratory crisis, the sheer numbers involved have made focusing on the potential future benefits a little bit tricky for those who are involved, both those who are moving and those on the receiving end of the tidal wave of humanity. The European crisis began in earnest in 2015, but in 2014, nearly 300,000 people quote-unquote irregularly entered the EU primarily via Mediterranean routes. By August of 2015, about the same number, almost 300,000 people, had already arrived in the EU illegally. So the same quantity as the entire year, the year before. In the third quarter of 2015, double that, over 615,000 people entered the EU illegally. In the fourth quarter, nearly 1 million people entered the EU illegally, making the total for 2015, somewhere around 1.81 million people, most of them arriving in Greece, Hungary, Croatia, and Italy. In January and February of 2016, over 123,000 people arrived via these routes, most landing in Greece, hoping to get into the EU. A popular Balkans travel route was closed and a deal was made between the EU and Turkey, and that slowed the tide, cutting it back down to tens of thousands in March and then mere thousands each of the following months. The majority of people entering the EU during this wave came from Muslim-majority countries, over half from Syria, followed by Eritrea, Afghanistan, Nigeria, and Somalia. Iraq and Iran were also common starting points. And the origins of those arriving varied as conditions changed and as routes were closed. When routes through the Balkans and leading through Turkey became impassable, the ratio shifted heavily in favor of those coming from African nations who commonly crossed the Mediterranean in boats to arrive in the EU. Most of the new arrivals were young men over 18, most were Muslim, and most were economically impoverished. Some started out that way back home, and some became impoverished along the way because of the circumstances that forced them to flee. According to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, by the end of 2014, the number of forcibly displaced people worldwide reached 59.5 million. In most cases, forcibly displaced refers to people who are fleeing violence. This is the highest level since World War II. 19.5 million of these people were officially designated as refugees, and 1.8 million were officially designated as asylum seekers, meaning they were seeking protection from the government to which they fled under the auspices of international law. The wars in Syria and Afghanistan substantially contributed to these numbers. Whole cities were destroyed and countless people were killed in on-the-ground violence and by aerial attacks from both local 
and outside participants, including the U.S. and Russia. There have also been military and ecological crises in Africa, which contributed to the surge of people flooding upward from the continent into Europe. The result was that all these people, with their varied traditions, heritages, priorities, spiritual beliefs and practices, and perspectives, found themselves in closer proximity than ever before. Many nations in Europe absorbed as many of these refugees or migrants, again, depending on who you talk to, as they could, and set up programs to help them acclimate to their new homes. These programs have had mixed success, as some new arrivals had no desire to acclimate and saw the efforts to help them do so as impositions. If your religious convictions tell you that, for example, women should behave in a certain way, and your new society starts to tell you otherwise, then it makes sense that you might consider that society to be heavy-handed, unfair, or even ideologically wrong. Wrong at the highest possible level, potentially. Similarly, the locals in these cases might consider the newcomers to be ungrateful or ignorant, unwilling to accept and bend to the new realities of the world outside of their belief system bubble. This movement of people, by all indications, has been a very mixed bag. For every horror story about a fundamentalist sneaking in amidst non-fundamentalists, who then plots or commits terror attacks in their new homes, you can find another about the joy of cultural exchange, of new friends made, of tiny towns rejuvenated by the newly arrived young, youthful workforce, of people on both sides feeling wiser and happier for having these new people in their lives. In this particular case, much of the conflict has stemmed from the issue of slamming traditional religious, especially Islamic, values into an array of liberal democratic European values. But in truth, you could swap out any nationality, governmental system, religion, or tradition, and you'd end up with the same awkward situation. There is a more common and often quite potent bias against Muslims in many countries right now because of the religious affiliations of a number of successful and very news-grabbing terrorist groups around the world. It's already uncomfortable for everyone when cultures clash, but these newcomers are members of that scary group that we keep hearing about on the news that makes things doubly awkward and heightens the unfamiliar cat response that we get around each other, with everyone raising their hackles and hissing menacingly out of fear more than out of legitimate spite. And so while, right now, the storyline is oriented around primarily Muslim people fleeing to primarily non-Muslim societies, and the conflicts that arise as a result of that migration, in the future, it will almost certainly be other groups and other ideologies at play on both sides of this, just as has been the case all throughout humanity's history. It's best not to get too caught up on the specific labels in cases such as this. Other labels will take their place at some point, and someone new will become the bogeyman of the moment until they, too, are replaced. This whole situation is a reflection, in some ways, of what we've seen elsewhere since the beginning of civilization. If your home is being blown up, or your city is being raided by bands of roving murderers, or if tin pot generals are stealing your kids and making them into child soldiers, or if there are no economic opportunities, there's no way to feed your family, no way to survive as a practitioner of a locally hated religion or ethnic group, no way to be safe from the government, 
after speaking out about a repressive regime. I mean, why under those circumstances would you not take any opportunity to get away from all that? Thrust into that type of situation, I would like to think that I would do the same, that I would face the risks of leaving, of crossing vast distances for the possibility of something better. Viewed through a certain lens, the people who are moving in this way are almost heroically entrepreneurial and that they've identified a problem and are trying to solve it. Rational arguments could be made about whether they're making the right choice, pursuing the proper solutions, but it's difficult to be fully rational when you're being shot at or starving. It's also unclear what alternatives might be available to people with a certain passport or without financial means or who are grabbing what they can as they are chased by explosions and murderers, or as they're mourning the recent loss of half their family. And so viewed from a humanitarian angle, it does seem important that something is done here, that we make sure a huge population of our fellow human beings who are doing what any of us would do in their shoes are not hung out to dry in their time of need. This is something that we've seen before, and it's our opportunity to do it better than we did in the past, maybe learn from our mistakes. But the question of what's to be done, specifically, is the tricky part. Because again, simply absorbing such populations without consequence isn't always a viable answer. And when it is, it's not always pleasant. Or, and this should not be important, but it is, it's not always a politically viable option. There is probably no quick fix solution to this. The agreement made between the EU and Turkey staunched the flow of people flooding from the Middle East into Europe, but it created a new problem in Turkey. Turkey received a large amount of money to block, process, and absorb many of those people, but it's not a long-term fix. Other issues in Turkey have already weakened their relationship with the EU, and simply putting up walls and hefting guns isn't something that can keep people out forever. New routes will be found, new deals will be made, new conflicts will arise all around the world. Many experts expect that the number of mass migrations and the scale of those migrations will increase dramatically in the coming decades. The effects of climate change could have a hugely negative impact on many aspects of modern life, from mass die-offs of different species to the increased intensity of natural disasters like floods and hurricanes and wildfires. But the number of so-called environmental migrants, which is a term used by some organizations, including the United Nations, to designate people who are fleeing environmental catastrophes, either temporarily or permanently, that number could be as high as 250 million people worldwide by the year 2050. There are an estimated 10 million people who fit into this category today. So that's a 25-fold increase in just 30 years. And many of these people would never be able to go home, as large swaths of livable land are made unlivable by desertification, rising water levels, and by untenable regular disasters like tornadoes and hurricanes. There could be an increased number of wars and other conflicts stirred up by the increasing finitude of resources like drinkable water, which would also render more land temporarily or permanently unlivable. At a certain point, currently occupiable space becomes, for most intents and purposes, permanently unavailable. 
And as the global population continues to rise and the global quantity of livable land continues to shrink, we end up in an increasingly awkward, dangerous, and claustrophobic situation. Alongside that trend and those predictions is the concurrent expansion of complex networks worldwide. Airport hubs, internet cables, oceanic shipping lanes, these have given us the ability to communicate across vast distances using data packets and pixels to create valuable things and to move that value instantaneously anywhere on the planet. And huge cargo ships, planes, and trucks allow us to move atoms in very much the same way. This reality has resulted in a slow but steady growth market for people who want to have the benefits of elsewhere wherever they happen to be, which at the same time has allowed a group of people who want to live a less tethered existence to do so. Expats, digital nomads, people who travel half the year. Many of us work from our laptops or phones already, at least part of the time. And the idea that we could conceivably work and live from anywhere is fairly appealing to some. I myself have been living this way since 2009, traveling full-time, enjoying the benefits of doing so. This is still a lifestyle that is not a good fit for most people, and it's still something that is a privilege for the fortunate few in a lot of ways. Those whose work can be done from anywhere, those who were born with the right passport, those who earn money in the right currency. But I do wonder if we might see something similar become an option for more people in the coming years. Not necessarily traveling full-time, but having more modular lives that can be more easily packed up and moved, that are more convertible and transferable. I can imagine a world in which entire populations, on a whim, can travel around like our data packets and Amazon Prime shipments travel around today. A lot of the systems are already in place. It would just be a matter of scaling them up and making them appropriate for people as much as stuff and pixels and being prepared for the inevitable changes that would arrive alongside that infrastructural change. And there would, I think, be a lot of changes. How would you tax people, for instance, if everyone was moving around all the time or could move and leave whenever they liked, if borders were no longer an issue, and we all had maximum portability and travelability, however much we wanted, whenever we wanted. How would citizenship work if location was less of a vital thing, vital to who we are and our identity? How would governments operate in a location, non-dependent future? How might such a system work technologically? Would we pay a company that gives us a home in one of their thousands of locations around the world? We'd have a subscription to a network of potential apartments, some kind of continuous Airbnb arrangement maybe. Instead of paying rent, we have a membership to that type of service. Would we have apps on our devices or whatever replaces our devices in the future that allow us to use any mode of transportation in the world and a portion of our monthly fees to that membership program or even our taxes maybe to the government would be sent as a microtransaction to the operator of that mode of transportation, a company or an individual that owns the bus, the autonomous car, the plane, the boat, the camel that we use to get from one place to another? 
Would we tap into the power of algorithms and AI to help us orchestrate the flow, the mass migration of groups of people from one place to the next, reducing individual costs of transportation to nearly nothing, and optimizing efficiency for that constant movement? Every plane almost always in the air, every car almost always moving, our land and other resources no longer required to park or store underutilized capital of this kind, the modes of propulsion no longer dependent on non-renewable resources? How might our values shift as a result of this newly common mobility capability? And what might happen to things like nationalism and patriotism if borders are no longer quite so impermeable? Also important, how might we manage things like war and natural disasters when everyone's shifting around so frequently? Would our networks be able to trace us new routes, diverting us around the affected areas? Would some people set their travel settings on their app so that they are routed through that area instead, so that they could volunteer to help out on their way to someplace else? And what would be the purpose of war and that type of traditional conflict at this point to begin with? We're already seeing a change in this dynamic where taking and holding land is often less important than controlling the resultant resources from that land. Would physical conflicts disappear when physical land meant even less, at least in terms of building up fortifications and walls and housing permanent residents? Or would it go in the other direction? The permanent becoming more desirable and valuable and rare because it's something that most people lack. Would holding still become a luxury that few people could afford? This concept may never be feasible or even desirable. It may be that permanence of place, of putting down deep physical roots, becomes more important in the future, not less. As the world becomes less certain and less seemingly stable around us, it could be that these tools continue to be used by only the few, not the many. It could be that something happens that kicks us back to the Bronze Age before we have the chance to implement the grandest of our ambitions, and the whole purpose of speculating about it is rendered moot. I'll be interested to watch these migrations and movements, though, because they provide insight as to what might happen next. We've already seen an evolution in the way people travel, both intentionally and out of necessity, sometimes truly tragic and horrible necessity. Smartphones changed almost everything in this regard, allowing migrants and refugees to organize and share information and safety from the road in ways that were not possible even five or ten years ago. I wonder what will happen with and adjacent to these types of movements and how these types of migrations will further adjust our feelings about people outside of our current cultural spheres beyond our current system of borders and walls, and how our concept of civilization, of what it means to live in the modern world, might change as well. The book that I'd like to recommend today is the first book of the King Killer Chronicle series. This is a fantasy series written by Patrick Kothfuss, and the name of this book is The Name of the Wind. I only heard about this book recently, and that's kind of strange. I 
went through and read essentially the entire fantasy genre section of my local independent bookstore when I worked there in high school. And somehow I managed to not read this one. And I'm glad that I have it to read now, though, because it's really very enjoyable and in some ways kind of relevant for current events, strangely. Now, this is not a contemporary real world type of storyline. It is a fantasy novel. There are monsters, there are swords, there is armor, there is some magic involved, but it's presented in a really interesting and compelling way. Each of the three books in the series, and there are two of them currently, the third one does not yet have a release date, so you, like me, may be left hanging at some point, waiting for that one to arrive, though I do hear tell that they're considering making this series into the next Game of Thrones, so we'll see about that. They might pull an HBO and move out ahead of the book series with the television storyline. But the book is interesting because the narration style is told by the protagonist to a person who is chronicling his story after he's already done the things that he's talking about. And each book is one day of him telling the story to that chronicler of stories. And the way that he's telling it is a little bit meta. He is aware of the power of stories. He is a storyteller. He is a musician. And he takes you, the reader, through his somewhat legendary in his own time story, making it quite clear how he, in some cases accidentally and in some cases intentionally, manipulated things to increase the size of the legend for various different purposes. And he, in some ways, agreed to chronicle this story to begin with to combat essentially fake news that was arising around it and being used for different purposes that he didn't agree with. This book is somewhat reminiscent of Ender's Game or even Harry Potter to a certain degree, though it's definitely not a YA novel by any definition. There is a whole lot of satisfying competency porn, is what they call it. People essentially doing things really well and it being very satisfying to watch or in this case read about. People essentially kicking ass at things and facing off against the odds and succeeding. There's a whole lot of that. There's some charming characters. The writing is incredibly solid, particularly for the genre. So if you get the chance, if you're looking for something interesting to read and get sucked in by the way that I have, The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. The first book of the King Killer Chronicle is very much worth your time. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I have written, at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on Twitter or Instagram at Colin is my name, and I'm Colin Wright on Facebook. Feel free to say hello if you care to on your social network of choice. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.